God, we are thankful to be in your presence. We're thankful to have a book that we know is alive, that is actually filled with the power of your Holy Spirit, and that is capable of speaking to each person in this room tonight in a specific and special way. And so we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would quiet our hearts and that we would hear, hear your voice, hear your will, and that as you speak, that we would not only listen, but listen and obey, and that we would respond and that we would grow and that you would have your way in us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray, amen. So First Peter, we're going to start in chapter 3, but really you can't do that because Peter's in the middle of a thought. And remember when you're reading the scriptures that the chapter and verse divisions were not put in there originally. And they were added later on uh, with the goal of making it easy for Christians collectively to get to the same place in scripture easier. And you under, we understand this inherently because tonight I said, go to First Peter chapter 3. And hopefully most or all of you made it to First Peter chapter 3. Right, especially you get in some of the bigger books. If I say go to Matthew 14, that's a lot easier than saying, okay, there's that passage in Matthew, right, when Jesus is, is he's doing this and he's teaching this and we're all trying to get there together. So the chapter verse divisions are incredibly helpful, but they're not part of Scripture in the sense that the Lord didn't put them in there. And so sometimes we get a chapter division that's just kind of in an awkward spot because the author's in the middle of a train of thought. And that's where we are with chapter 3 because Peter has started his book, and he emphasizes, he opens up right away that really the whole point is our joy in salvation, our joy in the fact that God has saved us. And that's going to drive everything else through the rest of this book. But as he then goes from there, he talks about our need for holiness in our lives and our need to love one another, and he'll emphasize that again tonight. But now he he's makes a transition kind of halfway through chapter 2, and we starts talking about submission in the context of the Christian life. Because really the whole example of if you want to be a Christian, you want to be like Jesus Christ, that means you want to have an understanding of submission. Because Jesus did not come to do his own will. He did not come to glorify himself. He actually came to humble himself. And in his humbling, to bring us into fellowship with him. And so the example of Christianity is submission to authority uh, specifically to the authorities that God lets into place. And so he starts off in chapter 2, talks about our submission to God, and then he talks about our role of submission in government, and then our submission, uh, in, at the time he's writing to a, a world of, of slaves and slave owners and servants, and so he talks about being submissive to masters. But then he's going to start talking, making a transition here tonight into the context of relationships. So he dives in, chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, Wives, likewise, because he's continuing a thought, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So he starts off talking to wives. We'll get to husbands in the next verse. But as he's talking to wives, he wants to make a point that submission in a marriage is an important concept. And it's not, it's not given to men to emphasize this to women. It's given to women to accept this in their lives because the Lord puts authority structures in the world. Okay? And an authority and submission do not equate to inferior and superior. 
And this is really important because think about this. Jesus Christ came to earth and was submitted to the will of God the Father. Jesus Christ came to earth and was submitted to the will of his earthly parents while he was a child. Jesus Christ was in no way inferior to his earthly parents, but he was submitted because there's an authority structure that he was willing to accept for the sake of glorifying God. And so in the context here, Peter is making an emphasis that the role of a wife is to be in submission to the husband. Now, he's going to then go on further, as if that wasn't insulting enough to some ladies, and say, while you're at it, you should not put all your confidence in the externals and in the physicals of your life. And really what he's doing is he's making kind of a big concept, which is, what do you trust in? Do you trust in your ability to win an argument with your husband? Do you trust in the ability of your body to win an argument? Or, or in your ability to dress in a certain way or behave in a certain way that you can get what you want? Or are you willing to say, the Lord is at work, and I am willing to submit myself to God first and foremost and then let him do the work? And so that's kind of where he's going. And it, it is important, you know, we're in a, in a psychotic world. And so he's not saying... Uh, when he talks about government last week, he says, hey, be submissive to the government, but walk as free men. And so it's always an important point of clarification that he's not encouraging women to stay in situations that are unsafe or that are dangerous or that are uh, forcing the women into sin. Those are, those are exceptions. That's not what Peter's talking about. But there's a big difference between going along with a man who's asking you to sin and going along with a man who's just stupid because that sort of defines the entire gender. And in that vein, he moves on in chapter 7 and says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. I think every pastor and everything I read this week all tried to make some crack about the fact that, you know, the women get six verses and the men only get one. And maybe it's in, you know, there's all these, whatever, there's all these really stupid jokes you can pull out of that, but... I would just like to point out as a man that he puts four or five zingers in here that are enough to scare any man half to death. So husbands, likewise, dwell with your wives with understanding. First and foremost, job of a husband, according to Peter, is to understand his wife. And right there, he just lost like every man in the room, right? Because that involves, you don't have to understand women in general, but you have to understand a woman. Which is impossible, right? Like, like it's kind of, uh, it just doesn't, it's like, I don't know, there's some, there's some weird vibes going on there. Uh, I always, we laugh. I remember when I was about seven years old, dad told me once, he says, you just need to know, if a woman ever says, I don't care, she's not telling the truth. And I look, and I look back in my mind and I think, what precipitated him feeling the need to tell that to his seven-year-old son? But it stuck with me. Ever since, like for the rest of my life, whenever I'm having a conversation with a lady and she's like, I really don't care, I'm like, mm-mm, that's a trap, I know it. You care, it's a test, and I'm going to fail. It doesn't matter at this point, it doesn't matter if I say, yes, you do, because that also would kill me. But like, you know, when a woman says she doesn't care, mm-mm, that's a lie. But it's the role of a man to understand his wife and to give her honor as a weaker vessel. And this is sort of that same idea of submission does not create a value structure. Husband is to give honor to his wife as a weaker vessel. Why? Because she is, in some senses, weaker than him. She's not weaker spiritually than him, but she is more fragile, right? A man can usually say things that will make his wife cry more easily than a wife can say things that will make her husband cry. 
Women are wired differently than men. And that's not a value statement that the Lord is putting in place. And, and we understand this even in conceptually throughout the world, right? You could have a five-gallon bucket and a porcelain vase. One is much more fragile, but it is also much more valuable. So value and fragility are not contradictory. But the husbands have a role to understand their wives, to treat them with honor, and then to also remember that they are heirs together. And this is, this is it's hard to sort of understand how radical this statement is in our world. Because we've had women's liberation movements, and we've had feminist movements, and we've had, you know, like, we've had a lot of, of energy going into giving women an equal place in society. Okay, and that's not to say that everything's perfect, and that's not to say that everything's hunky-dory, but understand, in the ancient world, okay, this is massive, because in the ancient world, your wife is a piece of property. She's an object for you to use or discard as you see fit, and nobody's going to stop you. There, there are really no limits on what you can do to your wife. There's no, there's no legal protections in place for your wife, right? And so what Peter is saying right here is, is revolutionary in this world, where he's saying, you're heirs together. You and your wife are going to receive the grace of God together. Other religions don't teach this. Other religions love to emphasize what men get. Right? Islam, if you, if you do your time right, you get 70 virgins when you get to paradise. The Mormon church teaches more or less the same thing. It's, it's, it's these very, you know, you get these religions that just, the reward that they can define as paradise is sexual pleasure for men. And they really don't care what happens to the women. And Peter says, no, no, you are heirs together of the grace of God. And then he says, do those things, understand all those things, last little zinger, that your prayers may not be hindered. Now that is an interesting statement because it means a couple of things. It means Peter assumed that men in the church would view their prayer life as something serious. It means Peter assumed, of course the men in the church are going to be w- woken up by this idea. Because what God is saying through Peter is if a man blows off his wife, God will blow off that man. That's a scary concept. That ought to make every man sit up a little straighter, and listen a little more closely. And that's not to say, and you know, again, there's still a role in marriage, right? God created the man to be the head of the home and the wife to be the heart of the home, and there's a balance that needs to happen, okay? And sometimes a man needs to say, this is where the Lord is leading us, and we have to walk with this. But oftentimes a man needs to listen very closely and say, okay, let's, let's hear this. What, what is the Lord saying? And so there's just a role, Right? The, the wife is called to be submitted to the husband, and the husband is really called to submit himself to the idea that his wife has needs that he needs to be aware of. And he goes on, he says, Finally, verse 8, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. So he's kind of lumping up. You know, hey, I talked about everybody's under God, we're all under government, we're under, you know, some of us are under masters, some of you are in a marriage relationship, but finally, all of you guys, be of one mind. Whose mind? Because all of us, it'd be really easy for us all to be in agreement here if you all agreed with me, right? One mind, usually we think of as my mind. But no, it's the mind of Christ. All of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's really interesting here, because Peter directly connects the blessings of God with our love for other people. He says, if you want to experience the blessings of God in your life, you need to love other people. And in the context of the book, he's, he's making an emphasis, not exclusively, but he's making an emphasis on other people in the church. Okay, our, our love should be, our love for one another will determine our capacity to receive blessing from God. Okay, and this is one of those things that's it's really important that we always are aware of and we talk about it over and over and over again, but the scriptures talk about it over and over and over again, and so it bears repeating. And that is, there's a lot of things that we don't do to be saved or don't do to be approved by God, but because God has saved us and because God has brought us into fellowship with him, there are things that it is appropriate for us to do. And it is a cause and effect universe, okay? If, if you, we understand this, you break laws, you go to prison in most states. Um, we understand that there are, you know, if, if you put certain things into your body, you will reap certain health consequences. If you, if you enact a certain behavior, certain ripple effects will follow. And so we understand this inherently, and the Lord is saying, if you want to, you can't, you can't prescribe a formula of, oh, if I just do the right thing, God is obligated to bless me. But it is a cause and effect universe where you can open yourself up to be more capable to receive the blessings of God. And so by loving one another, we actually expand our capacity to receive the blessings of God. He says, if you love, would love life and see days, refrain from evil, refrain from speaking to see, turn away from evil, seek peace. Love as brothers. And so he's just carrying this idea of because, remember the first, the first chapter of First Peter, there's a huge emphasis on, hey, Praise the Lord, he saved us. Praise the Lord, he gave us his grace. Praise the Lord, Jesus died for us. Praise the Lord, he's given us a promise of eternal life. And therefore, these things are appropriate. These things are what we are called to do as Christians. Verse 13. He's going to kind of make a transition here. Um, and he's going to really, through all the end of chapter 4, he's going to start talking about suffering in the Christian life. Okay, so we talked about submission, and now we're going to talk about suffering, which is, Almost as fun to talk about as submission. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So he says, even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And he's going to expound on that later in the chapter. But he then makes this point. He says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer or a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. He starts off when he's talking about suffering and says, your response to suffering should drive people to ask you questions. The Christian life lived out in, in, a, in a lost and dying world should cause people to ask questions. Because the world has no hope. The world has, has no idea of how to survive the thought of the COVID pandemic. 
or Russia invading Ukraine, or Hamas invading Israel, or North Korea getting their hands on a nuclear bomb, or Iran getting their hands on a nuclear bomb, or Pakistan uh, destabilizing as a nuclear power and a rogue agent getting their hands on a nuclear bomb. There's actually several options for a nuclear meltdown, none of which are very pretty, right? Or the fact that about a third of the United States sits on a massive underground volcano that if it blew, and it is rising at a steady rate, we're not quite sure when it's going to go, but it's going to go at some point. If it keeps going and if it goes off soon, about a third of the United States will be permanently uninhabitable. Hmm. Interesting. Right? Uh, so there's a lot of ways things could go on. And the world has no framework for dealing with them. But we do. We say, yeah, things are, things are bad, but you know, we have hope. We have grace and peace. We understand uh, that we are part of this world, but this is not our final home. And so we keep moving forward in hope. We have life, and not just not we're living, not we're breathing. We actually have a vibrancy to our life that the world can't comprehend. It should drive the world to ask questions, and we should be ready with answers. And so he says, be ready to give a defense. When someone asks you what makes your life different, it's okay to tell them, I know Jesus Christ. Do you? It's okay to say, well, God created the world. Jesus died for my sins. I've accepted that, and so I have hope. It's okay to know what we believe. And he, Peter's encouraging us, know what you believe. What do you believe? What do you believe? Because sometimes we say, well, we believe something, but do we? Right? It, it's very easy. It's very easy to believe whatever all the rest of your friends believe. It's not so easy to go against it. So if you just live in a Christian club and all your friends are here in church and we do our Sunday morning and our Wednesday night and our Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, oh man, it's super easy to believe in Jesus Christ. But do you believe? What happens? What happens if, if all of a sudden your friends are gone? Do you believe? And Peter's he's going to push us. And this is not, you know, the next chapter is not like a super comfortable, fuzzy chapter. Okay? Peter's not a super comfortable, fuzzy guy. Peter just, you know, throughout all of the Gospels, he's got something on his mind. He says it, usually without very much tact. And so he's not here to make us feel good about ourselves. He's here to remind us, hey, God saved us, and that's awesome. And so, when life is lame, here's what we do. So he's continuing on. He says, for Christ also, well, let me just back up. We're going to start in verse 18. We're going to get all the way through the end of chapter 3. He's going to hit about four big thoughts, all of which are kind of significant. Don't get lost in the weeds as we go through them, okay? Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an anti-type which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Could that possibly be any more clear? Um, so here he goes. So he says, first of all, we're going to talk about suffering. Suffering in the life of the Christian. He says, first of all, remember this, Christ also suffered once for sins that he might bring us to God. Suffering is what was necessary for us to come to God. So we shouldn't have this expectation that now somehow we're beyond it. it. It was the most basic level requirement in order for us to have a relationship with God. And so he's saying, it's not like uh, you're getting harsh treatment. This, this is 
something that should actually be natural to the life of the believer. Suffering and hardship are a result, or not, I don't want to say a result. They're a, just a factual part of Christian existence. Uh, Paul says, all who desire to live godly in life will suffer persecution. Or to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. So he says, first of all, if we're going to talk about suffering, remember, Christ suffered for us. Second of all, remember, Christ was victorious. And he went on and then he describes this thing that is kind of weird. He talks about he's preaching to the spirits who are in prison, who were disobedient right before the flood. Here's what I'm going to say. There's a couple, nobody's 100% positive what he's saying right there. Most likely, and we'll get to this in probably about five months when we get to the book of Genesis. Most likely, he's referencing sort of a specific demonic entity that was around at the time of the flood that was trying to corrupt humanity in a specific way. And probably what he's saying here is when Jesus died, he went and basically told, told the demonic forces, hey, I won. You lost. You had a plan. You thought you, could, you thought you could defeat humanity. You thought you could defeat me. You were wrong. Which sounds a little cocky if a human says it, but if the creator of the world says it, it's just a statement of fact. And then, as he goes from there, he says, oh, that reminds me, there's also an antitype which saves us, baptism. And what he's not saying is that you have to be water baptized in order to be saved. Now, because he specifies, there is also an antitype, verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. He says, baptism is what saves you, but I'm not talking about washing off your flesh. I'm talking about the baptism of Jesus Christ washing away your sins. Okay? Baptism is a physical act that Christians partake in, but it's, that physical act is a symbol of a spiritual reality. Okay? So people, Christians get all psyched out over this sometimes. Do you need to get baptized in order to be saved? Here's the answer. Of course you have to get baptized to be saved in a spiritual context. You need a spiritual baptism to be saved. You need the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away your sins in order to be saved. That's a spiritual baptism, and that has to happen in order for you to be saved. Do you have to be baptized in water in order to be saved? No, but that's a stupid question to ask because scriptures command believers to get baptized as a symbol of comprehension. Okay, as a way of saying, I understand that Jesus Christ washed away my sins in blood. I would like to symbolize that I understand that by going down in the water and coming back up. To symbolize that Jesus is capable of cleansing me and that my old man, my old sinful self, has been left in the water and in essence drowned and I've been raised up to life, to a new life, in the same way that Jesus Christ came out of the grave. And so... Physical water baptism is a command from Scripture. So it's not really a question of, like, do you have to get baptized in order to be saved? It's, it's kind of like in the book of James. Like, James is all about, who cares? Just do it, right? So if you haven't been baptized and you're a Christian, just get baptized. But if you, uh, you know, if you accept Jesus Christ and then you die in a car wreck before you get baptized, you're still going to heaven. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was on a cross, and there was a thief next to him. We said, Lord, would you receive me into your kingdom? And Jesus said, today you'll be with me. And that man did not get off of the cross and get baptized in water. That man, he's actually, that man's actually a great, 
reference point whenever people have a little pet doctrine that they add on to salvation. Because people all around the world add these little things like, well, you know, in order to be saved, you had to get baptized. Well, the man on the cross was not baptized. In order to be saved, you have to speak in tongues. Well, the man on the cross did not speak in tongues. In order to be saved, you got to, you know, dress right. The man on the cross was naked. Okay? And, and there's, he, all he did was accept Jesus Christ, and he was saved. Now, if the Lord gives you more time than that man had, yes, there are things you should do as an appropriate response. So, of course, you should get baptized. But baptism, the baptism that saves you is the spiritual one. And verse, chapter 4, verse 1, he likes to continue his thoughts. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. So get ready. Jesus did it. We get to do it too. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So why do we suffer as Christians? Like, in some ways, it doesn't make any sense, right? Like, Jesus already paid it all. Why would he then let me suffer? And, and the, there's a couple answers. And one is that we are still in a broken world, and we still have broken bodies, and the whole world is slowly winding down. Evolution is not real. Evolution is the idea that things are getting better. We're not getting better. We're all dying slowly. Every human being, every, everything about the world, the world is getting old. It's dying because of sin. And so there are natural consequences that happen as part of that, okay? But there also is a reality that the Lord will sometimes allow specific hardships into our lives. And one of the reasons Peter's explaining here is that it causes us to walk away from sin. Because when you're suffering, you don't have the energy to do anything else except be focused on Jesus, right? When you're suffering, you really don't have time to, to hope that Jesus and your pet habit are going to get you out of this. You, have, you, know, you, you can only grab onto one rope at a time when you're drowning. And Jesus is the one. And so suffering clarifies our vision and our calling. And so sometimes the Lord will allow suffering in our lives if we're getting distracted. Because it's just a means of driving our focus back. And he says, verse 3, For we've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. And he says, listen, if you're upset because suffering is causing you to walk away from sin, can I just point out that however much time you spent walking in sin in the past is all the time you needed. We have spent enough time, Peter says. We have spent enough time walking in sin. And so if God is allowing suffering in our lives to cleanse us from sin, there's no grounds to be angry at him, right? All we have, all, the only appropriate response we have to the Lord is utter thankfulness and utter devotion that he does anything other than blast us into hell. Right? Because we do not deserve anything more than that. But he actually says, hey, I'm going to save you, and I'm actually going to let hard things into your lives as a means of teaching you things about me that you're not going to learn any other way. And we say, wow, that's not fair. And Peter says, you know what? You have already wasted enough time fighting against God. You've already, you've already, how much, however much life you have wasted serving yourself, it's been enough. 
It's time to move on, Peter says. Verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. He's continuing the thought, right? Uh, listen, we don't have time to goof off. This is, this is, we are nearing the end. If, you're not nearing, if we're not nearing the end of the world, which I think we are, you're nearing the end of your life. Okay, and some of you are young and you think, no, I've got 70 years. 70 years is not very long, okay? I can take a 70-year-old tree and a chainsaw and I can end 70 years of growth in about 15 minutes. 70 years, you take, a, you take two cars on the interstate and two 70-year-olds and you can end 70 years of life in about five seconds, right? However much time you've got, there's no guarantee. There's, there's nothing holding, holding on to you other than the hand of God. And so there's no guarantee, so... The end is getting close. Therefore, be serious and be watchful in your prayers. Prayer is not time to get God to do us what we want. It is time to get serious. Prayer is not when we try and make God's will align with ours. It's when we say, God, what do you want to do? God, please fill me with your power and with your Holy Spirit so that I can be an effective minister of the gospel in this world. Verse 8. I love this because now he's sort of in his, you know, his, his victory speech, if you will. And above all these things, above everything else we've covered, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Don't you think that's an interesting, like, zinger, right? Like, and above everything else we've covered tonight, guys, uh, be nice to each other. Woo! Peter equates that as, like, the highest act that the Christians should be attaining to. Like, which is just kind of, which should blow our minds a little bit. And it does kind of blow my mind just because of, in general, how often churches fail in this, right? And this church, I think, does a, does a wonderful job, in all seriousness. I think this church does a wonderful job of being a hospitable and generous and gracious church within the context of reaching out to our community, but also within the context of each other. But it's important that we don't ever just ride on, well, you know, the church has got it covered. Do you love one another? Not does the church love people, because that's, that's broad, as an entity and an entity. Do you love the person who ticks you off? Or do you love the person who is hard to love? Right? And so, verse 9, Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's saying God will give you a specific gift to minister and to bless the people around you. You need to use it. And sometimes we, we struggle with this because we, want, uh, we hope that God giving you a gift means it's always fun. That's not always true because sometimes God gives gifts to people who are going to use them. Right? Some people say, oh, I want to have the gift of evangelism. Well, start evangelizing because the Lord likes to give gifts to people who use them. Some people want to have the gift of hospitality. Well, be hospitable. And sometimes we, we, you know, we, we kind of dump all the responsibility on God. Well, if God gives me the gift, I'll do it. No, you wouldn't. And if your take is, I'll do it if God dumps it in my lap, then you wouldn't do it even if God did dump it in your lap. So ask the Lord, God, what are you calling me to do? Do it. And then watch him supply the gift. Verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing had happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. 
If you are approached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So don't think it strange, he says, verse 12. Don't think it strange when you suffer. Christ suffered, he did everything right, and the world still hated him. Don't think that if you're just a nice Christian, people will like you. Right? Our world is in a position right now where it hates people for speaking the truth, which is an odd place to be, but the world is currently obsessed with it. Right? You, you can state just facts of biology, and the world says, oh, that's racist. Oh, that's hate speech. Oh, that, that's offensive. Oh, that's aggressive. Oh, that's making me unsafe. And, and we can sort of chuckle about it sometimes because in some cases it's extreme and it, it's pretty foolish. But the world is, is not interested in being nice to Christians because the world is lost. The world is dying and the world is separated from Jesus Christ. And the world hates Christ and we have Christ in us and therefore the world is going to hate us. Okay, and so Peter says, they don't think it's strange. Actually, rejoice in it because it means that the Spirit of God is in you. If the Spirit of the world, if the energy of the world thinks you're no threat or thinks you're one of them and thereby leaves you alone, that shouldn't be a comforting thought, right? If, if, if you are getting hated by the world because you're a Christian, he, he specifies, not because you're being a jerk, not because you're being, well, you know, you know the words, uh, not because you're being one of those, right? If you're being oppressed because you're one of those, that's your fault. But if you're being oppressed because you're one of those, or because you're filled with the Spirit of God, that means you're filled with the Spirit of God, right? And that should cause you to rejoice, and it means that God is actually keeping you alive because he wants his Spirit to be manifest on the earth. He's actually deciding to use you as a means of proclaiming his glory. You think, wow, I wish he'd pick on somebody else. He's like, but no, no, Peter says, no, it's a comfort. It means he actually thinks you're worth the trouble, right? God is under no obligation to keep you alive. And sometimes we think, oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly, right? But he says, I'm keeping you here for a reason, because I want you to be part of the plan that I have for this world. So if you suffer as a, as a Christian, count it as a privilege, Chapter 5, we're getting close. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Peter's exhorting leaders in the church here. But really, the principles apply to everybody because he says, hey, look, leadership needs to happen, but it needs to happen by example. And leadership needs to happen, but it needs to happen from the perspective of people who are wanting to serve others, not from the perspective of people who are hoping to gain something out of it. 
And so you can say, well, I'm not a leader in the church, but you know what? If you have an opportunity to be in a position of authority in any situation, this applies to you. Leadership happens. Make it happen by example. Right? Anytime an elder of a church has to say, hey, I'm the elder, he's already lost. Just like anytime a husband has to say, hey, I'm the husband, he's already lost. Right? Like, like, if the example has not been set in place, claiming a role of authority that you forfeited by your poor leadership is not going to do anything. So leadership has to happen, and here specifically he's talking about in the church, but it has to happen by example. Verse 5, likewise, you younger people, you guys all draw the line on where you think that age is, but if you are happy to say, oh, I'm not the older person, then this is for you. Submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be submitted. Right? We, people get, man, pastors get so nervous when they teach First Peter 3 about wives submitting to their husbands. You can just like feel it in their voices. You know, it starts to crack a little bit, and they're trying to buzz through it as fast as they can. But the whole book is about submission. The whole book is about humility. The whole book is about you don't have to fight for your rights in the kingdom of God. Because you don't deserve any rights in the first place. God did everything for you. And so it, he, that he has the sort of the audacious, audacious grace to want to include you in his plan. Who are you, who are we, who am I then to think, oh, he owes it to me to do X, Y, Z. He owes me this, or he owes me that. Peter says, you know, just humble yourselves. Christianity is not about you. And it's not about me. This church is not about you or me. Right? It's about Jesus Christ. And he has chosen to save us, and he has chosen to actually do something with us where he wants to actually use our lives. And it's not because he can't do the job on his own. Right? Like any dad with a young kid who's including the kid in the project, it's not an efficiency goal here. Right? Dads don't include their two-year-olds because they want to get the job done faster. Because it does not get the job done faster. God is not using us because he just, you know, he was running out of great church options in Madison, Indiana. And so he just said, you know what? Finally, we got one. We got a good one, right? It's here. We're like, okay, you know, <sighs> Madison is going to survive. You know, like, I was getting super nervous there for a second, but Madison's going to make it. That is not the Lord's situation, right? He, he's actually, you may not know this, he actually made the world. <laughs> and so he's actually really competent at being God. And so he can do whatever the heck he jolly well wants to do. He doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. So therefore, humble yourselves in the sight of God. If God uses you, it is not a mark of your maturity. It is a mark of God's graciousness. And so verse 8, he goes on. and He's, he's really wrapping up. He says, all right, now, be sober. The all right now part is not in the Bible. Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So be sober. Be vigilant. Christianity is not a game. It's not a toy. 
It's a war. And God does not call us to himself so that we can then have fun and do whatever we want and still like to think or pretend that we're Christians. He calls us to him so that we can go to war. And so live like you're in war because you are. You are at war with active combatants. Right now, people are in the States are trying to wrap their heads around what would it be like to live in Ukraine? What would it be like to live in Israel right now? I don't know. I don't know, but I'm in a much bigger war. Right? I'm in, a, I'm in a war for eternal souls. And I need to not screw around with that. I need to take that seriously. He says, resist the devil. He is, he is roaming around. He is looking for who he can pick off. The devil, you know, just like lions, find the ones in the back. Once you get a little bit isolated, doing their own thing, a little sick, a little old, a little weak, just pick them off. One at a time. Resist them. And it's interesting that he kind of uses that metaphor because so much of his emphasis is love one another. One of the best ways for a herd of animals to resist uh, a lion is to stick together. Hmm. It's almost like the Lord knows what he's talking about. But, verse 10, he says, May the God of grace who called us to his eternal glory, after you've suffered a while, we, we will suffer. But, after that, may God perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. There's a wonderful thing about this when, when you experience you know, grace and peace. Peace happens in spite of circumstances. And Peter says, you know what? May God just settle you, chill you out, strengthen you, right? And not, not disillusion you and make you think everything is peppy, but just settle you. Like, hey, you know what? We're in war. That's okay. Hey, you know what? It's going to be brutally hard sometimes. That's okay. Hey, you know what? There's going to be times when we kind of feel like maybe we're losing the war. That's okay, because your feelings are lying to you, and you should blow your feelings off. And hey, by the way, Jesus Christ won. He's in charge. He's got this. So may God settle you with that. And then he wraps up just sort of personal greetings to the church. He says, by Silvanus, or by Silas, some of your translations will say, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which I stand. So Peter evidently is dictating this to Silas, who's writing it down. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. It's a lady who we don't know. And so does Mark, my son, probably John Mark, the man who would eventually write the Gospel of Mark. And greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Peter wraps up a book on submission and suffering and pain and says, may peace be with you. And that only ever happens if grace is with you first, right? So may the grace of God be with each and every one of us. And as a result, may the peace of God go with every one of you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the words of Peter, uh, a faithful guy who stumbled in so many ways, and yet you use him because you're a gracious God. And we stumble in many ways, and yet you, you stoop to use us because you are a gracious God, and we thank you. We pray that the words we've read tonight would go deep into our hearts, that we would hear them and obey, that we would not be afraid of this world. We wouldn't be afraid of suffering. We would be focused, focused on Jesus Christ above everything else. 
God, we want to see you glorified. We do want you to return soon, but we want to be part of what you have called us to here and now. We want to be effective ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the kingdom of God, until you return or until you call us home. So have your way with us, God. Go before us. Guide us and lead us. Fill us with your power and your Holy Spirit. Guide us in your word and draw us close and give us peace. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen.